Welcome to Sam's Business Growth Show. I'm Sam Dunning, a digital marketing, sales, and business growth evangelist. Tune in and subscribe today as I'll be interviewing business leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs from around the globe. You'll be learning their story, how digital marketing has helped them along the way, and exclusive tips and insights to help you skyrocket your own business. Welcome back to the show. I'm truly excited to be joined today by Carson Heddy. Carson is a best-selling author of Birth of a Salesman series. Carson's consistently ranked in the top 20 sales gurus in the world. Um, he's currently ranked as one of the top 50 sales authors on LinkedIn. He's got a whopping 330,000 followers across his social channels. Um, he's one of the top Microsoft social sellers and ranked number one against nine senior leadership and sales roles across four companies, including Microsoft, AT&T, and he's a seven-time CEO, Gold Club, President's Club winner. Carson Wang, welcome to the show. How are you doing, man? Thanks so much, Sam. Doing well, and a uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Excellent, dude. So there's plenty we would love to cover with our time to, with you today. Uh, we want to know, learn your business growth strategies and secrets. We want to learn how digital marketing has helped you along the way. But first and foremost, we'd love to learn a bit more about your background, Carson. So if we could tell us where you grew up, um, how you got into the business world, and just guide us through some of the key roles that you've had and the lessons you learned along the way up until the present day, if you could, sir. Without a doubt. Uh, so I grew up in a small town uh, called Cape Girardeau, which is about 100 miles south of where I live today in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, in the U.S., and um, Basically lived there for the first probably 20 years of my life, worked at a grocery store, went to high school, college, and then I moved to St. Louis. And um, when I moved, I uh, actually had originally moved hoping to get a job with AT&T at the time they were Southwestern Bell. Um, Cape Girardeau is known for two things I've found. One is they are the home of Rush Limbaugh. And number two is uh, they're where they filmed the movie Gone Girl uh, with Ben Affleck. Oh, okay. What's, so, what's Rush Limbaugh, Carson? Rush Limbaugh is a uh, conservative uh, commentator. Uh, he's a radio oh, right, okay. show host, very well known in the States. So cool. um, I know uh, Gone Girl film, but I didn't know. A that. lot of people have, <laughs> have opinions one way or the other, as you can imagine on politics. So, um, but cool. yeah, Gone Girl was filmed there a few years back. Um, so it was pretty awesome. impressive. Uh, lived in St. Louis for the last 20 years of my life. And um, I spent nine years at AT&T. I actually started out thinking that it would be more of a customer service type role. And uh, it was a selling role. And uh, it, it was inbound. I worked with business owners to start. And uh, then it was switched to a residential center. But uh, it was a situation where it was, a, it was one call or nothing. Um, most of my roles at AT&T were that way. So I was promoted into management. Uh, then I was into senior management and then um, uh, went into a different group into the Yellow Pages when they were starting yellowpages.com. And each Got time it, um, it was, uh, you know, more of a, you know, you, you get a captive audience, you, um, you know, go through a process and you try to close the deal. Um, I always considered it more of a PG-13 version of Wolf of Wall Street. Um, you know, I got up every day, gave sales speeches, and uh, you know, people got on the phone, and we dialed, and um, it was an interesting uh, dynamic. I learned a lot uh, in that arena, um, really mostly about the importance of sales process, and then I compare and contrast that to my time now with Microsoft, where I've spent the last six years. Um, it's been a lot more about relationships. Um, I've been in a few different roles here. Uh, I started out in a brand new role. Uh, I was kind of a regional business manager role uh, where I was kind of a player coach. Um, I was able to go out and uh, prospect, but also led a team. And uh, we were very successful. Uh, we were actually out of St. Louis. We were number one in the world, eight quarters in a row. I mean, just unheard of. And awesome. um, I learned a lot about um, how to prospect, but also how to uh, truly build relationships and how to be a team player. Um, I had typically been an individual contributor, contributor up to that point or had just been a manager of teams or led uh, first and second level managers. So uh, to go into this role and to have so many different colleagues, uh, so many different teammates, um, it was an interesting uh, dynamic for me. And I would say I've learned more about selling in the last few years uh, than I had my entire career, which is ironic uh, because I was uh, audacious enough to write a sales book 10 years ago. So um, wow, I've learned okay. more, more about sales in the last few years working at Microsoft than ever before. So um, th th I think that helps uh, illuminate some of yeah. the different roles. 
I mean, let's, sure. let's, let's work up to, to where you are now. So the first, first role you said, Carson, what were you doing exactly? You said it was all inbound and you, it sounds like you worked way up the ladder to, to a management level fairly swiftly. So tell us a bit more about what you're doing and the steps you took to, to get to a management level. Yeah, great question. So Sam, when I started, I was a sales rep on the phone taking inbound calls. Um, when we first started, we were taking uh, calls from business owners. Uh, so a lot of times it might have been them calling in to uh, inquire about their bill or their account um, or to even just add uh, landline phones. Or <laughs> this is when uh, DSL high-speed internet was just coming out into the market. So okay. um, it might have been to sell high-speed DSL internet. But uh, really, that was for business owners. We actually transitioned that office to residential. So you know, we were fielding calls from people at home with uh, landline phones calling in about their bill. And over the years, I mean, we were required to sell anything from uh, uh, corded and cordless telephones um, to high-speed internet, to uh, dial-up internet, uh, long-distance plans. Um, it was very interesting. So as call would come in, we would take the call, field the inquiry, and if it was something that our division handled, uh, we would be required to take care of that need and sell them something. There was a sales process, as you can imagine, and uh, we would follow that process. I was very fortunate in that time. I, I spent probably about two years in that job, and um, you know, whereas a lot of folks would average maybe five sales a day, I would do 20, maybe 30 every day. And uh, oh, nice. really tried to look for every single call. How do I optimize this call? What's realistic? And it was really only because of the, the um, I never intended to get into sales. It was really because I had the ability to very quickly figure out what's this customer telling me, um, get the lay of the land, and then figure out what I had the opportunity to sell in any given situation. And it worked. Um, so that was my first role. And because I did effectively at it, and because I effectively shared a lot of best practices with other folks in the office and had a lot of good relationships, um, I was actually promoted to a uh, sales management role in that division okay. about two years later. Excellent. Okay, so it sounds like you, you put in a stellar performance, you're outselling everyone. And how did that happen, Carson? Was that just because you worked harder than everyone else? Or did you, were you reading sales books? Or did you take inspiration from other people on your team? Or was it because you followed a sales process? What was what made you stand out from the crowd? I'm ashamed to say that I had no sales discipline or polish when I was younger. Um, I didn't develop that until much later in life, fortunately. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> when I started out, I was just, uh, I, I got a taste of what it was like. I, I come from a small town and I worked at a grocery store and I got a taste of real money. And um, I got a feeling for, hey, I, I can do this. Um, I had a gift for gab and I was a hard worker. I didn't miss work. Got it. Always there. Um, and I was dependable. I mean, they had to tell me to leave once when I got sick, <laughs> uh, which, you know, nowadays, if you're sick, obviously, stay yeah, home. Yeah. but um, they had to tell me to go home. And oh, wow. uh, okay. it, it was a situation where um, I wanted to be the best. And I, I've always had a philosophy. If your name is next to a number, why wouldn't you want that number to be indicative of your skill and your, your effort? And I always abided by that principle. And I always gave it a hundred percent. Um, so I, that's why I was successful. I also did another thing. I was always looking for who is the best. Uh, when I came in, I wanted to hear what these people were saying, why the people that were successful were successful. And then I would take those little pieces and make that part of my arsenal. Uh, there's no reason. It's not taking a meal off the table of somebody else to take something that they're doing well and make it part of your own arsenal. And so I would always look at who's the best and how can I emulate what they do. And because I did that enough and assimilated that into my process, I was becoming successful. And that's, that's what it took. It really took finding out how to be the best in each of these parameters. Sales is about probability um, and it's about process. Uh, it's also about people, which I didn't really figure out much about until later. I was really just good at the conversational aspect with customers and then matching them to things that we had. Um, but I was, I was becoming very adept at figuring out what the best people were doing, taking that and then doing it as well as I could. Fantastic. Okay, so that's some really, really good advice for everyone tuning in in terms of looking at who's crushing it, who's doing really well in your organization, and just take inspiration for them. So were you just listening to their calls, Carson, just, uh, just shadowing what they were doing and then implementing that into your own sales, sales techniques? Or I think that's part of it, Sam. Um, you know, it's funny in call centers, 
it's there's there's a couple ways that people will behave in call centers and sometimes people will sit there they'll keep their head down they'll do their job I wasn't that guy I was I was up and engaging which is funny because I'm I'm more of an introvert in my daily life uh, but something about that adrenaline rush of closing deals or even just getting the sale um, you know I was standing up and I was engaging and I made friends with some of these people in the call centers and so we would compete we would find each other competing um, so yes I was absolutely listening to calls uh, but also, you know, just that water cooler talk. And back then we actually had water coolers. Um, but uh, just the ability to talk to somebody and say, hey, what, what's working for you? What's not working? What are your thoughts? Um, I was a sponge. I wanted to pick up as much as I could. And I wanted to try to do it better uh, than anybody else. And it worked. Great tip. I mean, in my opinion, stubbornness is one of the worst things you can be in sales. So not being open minded because none of us are the best. So that's, that's some awesome advice, dude. Okay, so you worked way up, um, became a manager, um, it sounds like. And what happened from there, Carson? So there it was, um, you know, I just, I continue, I, tr I tried to get to understand, I think I made a lot of the mistakes that first time managers make, you know, I tried to be everybody's friend, I tried to help them out. Um, you know, I was probably a little bit um, you know, more of a pushover than I should have been. Uh, but I think you have to go through those experiences because you, know, you had, a, you have an immediate up, right? I mean, everybody's like, Oh, Hey, it's the new guy. I want to impress him. Um, and then it's what you do after that honeymoon phase ends. Uh, that's really going to determine your success as a manager. And, um, sure. I was always an advocate for my people, and I think that was very important. I've always been a firm believer in people and process. And so as, as when I became a manager, I became a lot more invested in people. And uh, so, you know, and again, I probably was a little bit too invested out of the shoot, and I was always kind of an advocate for people. Um, but I, I had to get that, that right temperament to also work with my colleagues and also um, senior leadership, because... If, if you don't agree with what comes down from senior leadership, sometimes you have to realize, hey, I am, uh, I'm paid to play a role here. I am uh, paid to be an evangelist of this organization. So uh, sure. I spent a lot of time trying to find a healthy balance there, but my teams were very successful. Um, I was always looking for new challenges too. I've always been very inspired by Michael Jordan. Um, you know, All right, okay. talked about Jordan and just what a competitor he was. Uh, he was always asking his coach, Phil Jackson, for different challenges. So I felt like every time I tackled something, I went to my bosses and I would, I'd look for more. Um, when I started, I had six people on my team. Then I went to eight. Then I went to 12. Then I went to 20. I had almost 40 people on my team at one point, which nobody else had ever had more than 20. Um, but I wanted more and more and more. And had I not had, uh, had I not gotten promoted again, I would have had over 50 people on my team. And the main reason for that was because there were small like offices that only had 50 people in them, period. And I wanted 50 people on my team just to show that I could do it. Um, I was always looking for different challenges, but I was always looking for ways to make people successful and it was whatever their own template of that is everybody's success looks different and so there were some people that had a natural ability and so I felt like my job was to help them get where they wanted to get if they wanted to get promoted great if they wanted to make money great if they got themselves into hot water and did something they shouldn't then help them help them see the light don't just fire them don't just get rid of them you know figure out a way to help them uh see how they can use their talents uh, in a positive way and then on the flip side of that if if folks came in because I was the top manager, um, I often got some of the folks that, uh, you know, we, we drafted, right? And so I often got some of the folks that uh, were not deemed as, um, th that they would be as high of achievers. And I, I challenged that, right? Because I feel like everybody can be a high achiever. So I would dig in and figure out how can I help this person find their pattern of success, um, listening to their calls, figuring out process, and then getting their buy-in. I think the biggest thing that we as leaders have to figure out is you can't tell somebody how to do something. You've got to get their agreement and their buy-in. Number one, that they need to do something in a certain way. But number two, you need to make sure that it's got their voice. I can't just hand somebody a sales script and say, hey, read this. It's got to be in their voice and they've got to understand why they're doing it and how to do it. So um, that's how awesome. I spent the majority of my time as a manager in that role. Got it. So you built up quite a hefty team by the sounds of it. One of the biggest teams the organization had ever seen. So what, tell us a bit more. So for any, um, anyone in business listening or anyone that manages any kind of teams, give us some insights into how you can keep teams positive and motivated and 
how you're actually able to scale such a such a large team because as we all know managing more and more people the more people you've got to manage the more difficult it becomes and to keep all these people highly motivated especially sales people can be quite a challenge i'm sure it is so, yeah. um i think part of it is have fun um you know it's it's the energy you know we spend more time in our jobs than we spend at home with our families um, so I think a lot of times it's, it's, it's so critical for managers and leaders to understand that um, you've got to provide an environment where people uh, feel engaged, where they feel like their opinion matters, where they feel valued. Um, so I, I spend a lot of time sharing best practices. Um, I communicate a lot. Um, people are going to ask you questions. If you're in leadership, people are going to ask you questions all the time. You may not always have the answers, but it's critical that you reply. It's critical that you respond. It's critical that even if you can't make a change uh, that they're asking for, that you show that you care and that you show that you tried. Um, so I was, I've always been a firm believer, you know, there's, there's two different, you, you can either under communicate or over communicate. It's very hard to find a balance right directly in between. So I okay. probably always have over communicated. I still do it today um, because I feel like people value uh, communication and being heard. And so I spent a lot of time trying to really engage a lot of these folks um, to make sure that I had uh, their buy-in and their, um, you know, that they're understanding that they mattered as part of the team, but a lot of sharing best practices, uh, you know, somebody had a great sale or a great win. How can I promote that? But also I think one thing that's amiss is um, we as sellers, a lot of times we see these cool like sales flashes, but we want to know the whole story. Like how did that happen? Um, so I would take it one step further um, and, and really try to understand, okay, what were the makings of this deal? How did you put this together? Again, like the having fun aspect, getting out there and, and uh, you know, I'd sit on calls with these guys. I'd make and take calls uh, with them and for them so that they could see that I still, number one, knew how to do it. Uh, but number two, actually understood their job. And then I'd say the last piece of that, Sam, is always making sure that they're on the journey with you. Um, I think it's the same thing with customers, right? I mean, you don't you don't sell a customer anything. You clear the path for them to make the decision that you think that they should make. Same thing with working with sales reps, same thing with working with sales managers. Um, you wanna take them along in the journey. So to do that, you have to make sure that um, you understand them, you understand what motivates them, uh, you understand what they're after, and you understand what gaps they may have in their current process. But it's not enough for you to know those gaps, they have to see it too. And so, it's critical to make sure that they see that and understand anytime that I took on a new team or a new team player or whatever that looked like. Um, it wasn't, I, I never wanted to come in and just start telling them what to do. I wanted to make sure that I spent time with them to understand what mattered to them, but also how they did their job and what they thought would make their job better. Um, what they thought would make our department and our team better. And then I would work with them on a plan to improve. I took over a team once uh, that was on the verge of being shut down. It was this customer uh, experience group that called on existing customers. Um, okay. The goal was to upsell them. And uh, the team was doing 70% to goal and they were going to be closed down. And I said, I'll take them uh, before you close them. Like, just give me a shot. Let me take them on. I mean, this was in addition to my existing duties, mind you. Um, oh, but wow. I took over that and this team, is in the same company guys, at the same they, time. Same company, same time. Um, this was actually same, still at AT&T. This was our, when I was in the advertising space. Um, but okay. I took over this group, and uh, I think a lot of these guys expected me to come in, just make some immediate changes. I didn't make a change for 30 days. I spent time with them. I gathered information. I sat with them on calls. I took calls. I made calls. I was actually part of their process, and then I met with them multiple times to understand what they thought of their job, that they saw value in their job, that they saw value in what they were doing and the, the service that they were bringing to customers, how they envisioned where this job would go. And um, then I asked them what changes they felt like we needed to make to become successful. And I told them, I was like, guys, you're, you're on the verge of shutdown. I don't want to make any changes unless we have the full buy-in of this team. We're going to make these, these decisions collectively. And we did at 30 days, we made decisions collectively. Um, and uh, that team went from 70% one month to 141% of goal the next month. One month turnaround. And obviously, they kept, the, they kept the division open. Um, but uh, I think that's where it's so critical to understand that results can be achieved 
uh, by a team. Uh, these people, for whatever reason, uh, they're all in their role for a reason. So it's not our job as managers to try to find ways to undermine that or to, you know, cut the bottom percentage. Everybody's there for a reason. So let's figure out how we can collaborate and work together. And when people feel safe in that environment and like somebody's not out to get them, somebody's empowering them, somebody's motivating them, they're going to achieve. They're going to achieve better than anything you can imagine. And I, that's what I've always tried to do as a manager is remove obstacles to their success, but cut through the, you know, I, I, I'm not a believer in excuses. I, I can't stand excuses, but I will remove legitimate obstacles to success. I will listen, I will communicate, and I will advocate for my people every time. And it's always worked. Some really solid tips there, Carson, on keeping teams motivated. And especially that I love the, I love, I love a couple of things there where you mentioned about the way that you took on a team that was really struggling and then really listened to, to what they had to say and then got behind them and made sure everyone was collectively focused on the same goal and then made it happen the next month. Um, I mean, you've managed a lot of people at the same time. It sounds like, is it, how did you manage your time though? With, with so many people, how were you managing effectively your own time so you could speak to everyone in turn and, and make sure everyone was on the same page? Well, back then I was single and uh, okay. so I, I, that I, helps. Just gave, I just gave every aspect of my day and time to my work, uh, which isn't the most effective way. Um, now I have a wife, I have two kids and one on the way. And um, thank you. And um, so it's a little bit different. Um, and, and I would sure. say it's it's really... It's, it's about prioritization, uh, but it's also about, um, you know, mutual understanding and finding better ways uh, to, to scale and to communicate. A lot of people just need a quality touch, right? And that can look any number of ways. Back in my 20s, I mean, that might have meant I was on the telephone with somebody for an hour or as long as they wanted to talk because they wanted to talk through a sales problem or an issue with their team or, uh, you know, whatever it was and I was giving advice. Now that may look a little bit different. I don't have an hour to give necessarily. So it's really about, hey, I, I just need to make sure that this person feels heard. I also think that the proactive outreach uh, really helps, especially in a time like this where there's a lot of uncertainties in the world. I think it's critical that you just you reach out proactively to people and just ask them how they're doing uh, if they want to have a conversation. Um, those types of things matter. And uh, they show that you know your care for them is genuine. Um, so as far as management of time, there's another thing that I learned a few years back um, because I was not a good manager of time earlier in my career. I just made time for everything and everyone and just let them, let them run all over my calendar. A few years back, I had a, a manager that I worked for that uh, really taught me more how to aggressively manage my own schedule. And so I look at it every day, um, you know, while I'm actually on the treadmill in the morning or whatever I'm doing to uh, start my day, um, I'll look through my calendar. And if there's something that's not mission critical, um, you know, sort out what is mission critical, right? What are the non-negotiables? What do I have to do today? And so I'll make a short list of those things for myself because it's helpful for okay. me to see that and then just go through those items and knock them off the, the, off the list. And if I realize that a day is going to be especially daunting and there may be a call that I have that doesn't have to happen today, I'll, I'll move it. And I will do that unashamedly. Um, and I think it's critical to understand or be able to know the difference uh, between what's non-negotiable and what can wait until next week. Um, sure. I, look, I'm a, I'm a sales guy. I'm very assertive. I like to do things yesterday. Uh, so it's, it is, it, there, there is a challenge to that. I mean, you're not going to just flip on a light switch and all of a sudden just be able to aggressively manage your schedule. It took time. Um, but where I, where I challenge you as a business leader, as a business owner, look at your schedule, figure out what has to be done today and prioritize those things. Um, and, and frankly, yeah. I'm going to tell you this at the end of the day, you're going to look back and you're going to feel a lot more uh, like you achieved something if you do it that way than if you don't, because there are definitely days where I feel bamboozled at the end of the day. And I look back and I'm like, what did I really accomplish? I, Dude, I same. didn't really do anything. Same. I mean, um, I had, I had someone on a little while back that I can link you to soon a guy called Rich, a company called Refract. Anyway, he was telling me about the importance of putting together to-do lists the night before. So putting together the key tasks to so set as a Sunday night and you knew what you had to do on Monday, put together the key task in a simple list, prioritize them as well. So if, if we're talking about sales reps, it might be, I need to do these follow-ups. I need to do these prospecting calls. I need to make these new connections. I need to do these cold, cold outreaches and so on. And um, that way you've got it clearly mapped out and it doesn't get to 9am the next day. And then you're like, 
oh, what have I got to do? I've got all this stuff to do. And then it gets to the end of the day, like, what have I actually accomplished today? So I, I know the exact feeling because I've been there myself so many times. And so it's yeah, hard. I mean, some, sometimes you have to schedule time to drive in your car or to email, check email. And, and you've got to drown yep. out some of that stuff. If you've got something that has to transpire in the morning, do not get caught up in the onslaught of emails that are inevitable because they're going to happen. And then you're just going to be caught up in the fires. The fire is going to burn you. So definitely don't address the fires until you have the stuff that you got to get done complete. Nice, dude. Okay. So what happened next in your, in your journey then? So you, you, were, you managed some successful teams. You brought those to a good level. Did you stay with the company or did you move on then? Or what was next? So, yep. So I was, I was at AT&T nine years. Um, after I was in the original call center where I was a manager, um, I was recruited into a division of uh, AT&T Yellow Pages back when they had the Yellow Pages and yellowpages.com, which is starting out. Um, and okay. we were selling... Uh, online marketing packages. We eventually started selling print yellow pages and uh, search packages and websites. Cool, man. Okay. Uh, I ran a team and then I ran the division after a year. I got promoted to run the whole thing and uh, we were very successful. Unfortunately, the um, the fact that we were hitting you know $50 million on a uh, $40 million goal didn't matter when the print yellow pages losses of the entire company were what they uh. were. So uh, that division does not really exist in its original uh, iteration anymore. Um, I was uh, laid off at that time and, uh, you know, started looking for something else. And frankly, that was a good lesson for me because I thought that because of the experience that I had, I could walk in wherever I wanted to something comparable. And I was dead wrong. Um, I needed a network. I needed relationships and I didn't have any of that. And uh, it was actually around that time I was reading articles about LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn was just really starting out into prominence, which, you know, obviously Microsoft where I work now owns LinkedIn. Um, so it's sure. been an interesting journey. Um, but I, I started l learning how to use social media, how to use digital selling uh, to build a network and to build relationships. At first I knew nothing about it. I, uh, you know, I spent time trying to do that and I spent, I was off for about a year and I, I wrote a book. Um, that's when I, wrote birth of a salesman uh i was when i was at at&t i did a lot of uh, blogging and articles and things like that and uh, okay so, so you had some experience in content writing. creation and things yeah and i was passionate about writing and i was passionate about sales um but uh also i mean there's a lot of sales books out there and i didn't want to reinvent the wheel so i kind of created a sales parable type thing kind of like five dysfunctions of a team uh where it's a story within a book about selling. Um, and so I, I did that. I wrote out to 968 publishers and agents. Um, I only had 15 that agreed to read my book and six offered to publish it. And I picked the one with the best deal. So um, did that. Um, obviously haven't sold enough to retire, but if I hadn't written that book, <laughs> I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't have gotten the job that I got at Verizon not long after. And then I got recruited by T-Mobile and then I got recruited by both Apple and Microsoft. And so here I am um, and I've been at Microsoft for six years and I have now working on my fourth book. Um, so it's been an interesting journey. The, the jobs with Verizon and T-Mobile were more of a district manager uh, working with some of their uh, indirect retail organizations. Um, I was managing teams still, uh, but it was different because it was in retail and I had never been in retail before. So uh, just so to clarify, Carson, the book was a, a turning point by the sounds of it because it helped you network with all these different people and also jump into some new opportunities and some new and a new job for you. Was that right? Without a doubt. And I think, okay. Sam, that's a great point that I definitely don't want lost here. I'm a sales guy and I don't think anything I've done couldn't be done by anybody else. But where I would not have gotten that interview at Verizon had I not written that book. And here's why. Um, I even asked the guy who was my boss. Um, his, his wife had actually been looking through resumes and mine stood out because I had written a book. And that's it. Um, we are always as sellers, as leaders, as business professionals, we're always just looking for ways to differentiate ourselves. Um, that could be as simple as I've got a friend of mine who puts that he's a, um, a saxophonist in his LinkedIn headline. Because it's a conversation starter. It's, it's provoking. It's provocative. Um, and I think that's what, you know, not everybody is a writer. So um, it do, it, everybody does something that's unique. Play that up. Uh, because those are the types of things that forge real connections. Um, I got noticed because I had written that book. I hadn't lit the world on fire with the book, but I got noticed because of it. And that's how I got that next job. And then that's how I got the next job because I was recruited by that. And I look back in my career, I was always pulled into uh, jobs because of people that I knew every time, but that once. And um, 
I think it's very valuable to realize that it's all about the network and it's all about relationships. Awesome. Awesome. That's, that's fantastic. I love the part you mentioned then as well about staying memorable um, and making yourself a bit unique, um, which is especially important. If, if customers are talking to multiple vendors and things like that, being able to differentiate yourself and stand out from the crowd, that's a really, really good, good point. Um, all right, Carson, are there any, any particular more, any more insights rather that you can share with us throughout your roles that led up to Microsoft? Any other particular highs and lows or big wins that you had or any business um, lessons that you learned along those, along those steps? Leading up to Microsoft, uh, especially since AT&T, I mean, it was, there was a lot of ups and downs. You know, I went to this Verizon group and I actually ended up getting laid off again a year later. Um, okay. And it was, it's confounding, right? I mean, I felt like, man, I, I've had a lot of success in selling. Um, I moved up very quickly. I got promoted three times in six years at AT&T. And, um, you know, it was just, it was confounding. And then I, I got this T-Mobile gig uh, because I got recruited by a, a, a contact that I had made at Verizon. And um, I spent a year, a little over a year and a half there. I made a move to a, um, a business consultant firm that didn't pan out the way that I had hoped. Uh, but fortunately, I'd made a contact at T-Mobile uh, that recruited me into Microsoft. And I wasn't originally going to go. Um, it was an interesting situation. I thought that I had something else lined up. And so I kind of disregarded this role. Uh, the other thing didn't pan out. And uh, the day that it didn't pan out, I called the uh, gentleman who had interviewed me at uh, Microsoft. And um, turns out the person that they had hired, to, I was their first choice. Uh, the person that they had hired to replace me didn't take the job. And so um, All right. I, I took the role. And, uh, but it was, it, there was a lot of ups and downs, a lot of inconsistency. And I think that's indicative of, of your career. I mean, there's a lot of changes. I made some risks. Uh, maybe sometimes uh, you know, they didn't pay off. Um, but, you know, we can't be afraid to make risks, albeit, you know, we want to make strategic risks in our career. Um, I had written another book uh, in that interim um, and, uh, you know, just continuing to try to create content, add unique value, uh, but all the while learning a lot. Um, I think that's where I really learned about how to leverage social media um, and to really build a community around what I did, uh, which served me so well at Microsoft. Um, I came into at Microsoft, I came into a brand new role that didn't exist prior. And so I had a lot of uh, ability to kind of create that role. Uh, there wound up being uh, close to 80 people that did that role back when I did it. I think there's over a hundred now that do that role. Um, awesome. It was interesting because they didn't, I don't think they really knew, uh, the mold of what to hire. They hired a lot of different types of people, people that had technology backgrounds. I did not have a technology background. Um, so when you say I, you created your own role, Carson, what do you mean exactly? What happened there? Yeah, so there wasn't really a blueprint, right? I mean, okay. uh, so we were working directly with the uh, retail channel and uh, they were sourcing hardware and eventually they were able to sell uh, other facets, you know, cloud, uh, cloud services and cloud uh, solutions, et cetera. Um, we... I think some folks that they hired, they were, you know, traditional road warrior account executives. Um, there were other folks that they hired that were retail folks. I didn't fit any of those molds. I was a complete X factor, complete wild card. Uh, so I came in and I just decided, Hey, I'm going to do what I've done in previous roles and I'm going to build a community around what I do. I'm going to make a newsletter. I'm going to do events. I'm going to do webinars. I'm going to try to find uh, different business partners that are selling what we sell and, and figure out how do I empower them? How do I help them? I'm going to go back through, um, you know, I'm going to use uh, social media to try to meet people. And I'm also going to go through all the people that have gone through the retail channel that were business customers, because that's who we were selling to. That's who my team was selling to. And uh, just prospect to them and go meet them. And um, it's funny, I had uh, two really, really big wins in that job. Uh, I had most of the most of the people in our role probably sold to you know, maybe two, 300 unique customers. We sold to 8,000 over the time that I was there. And wow. um, it was, it was incredible, but we had two just gargantuan deals that we did. And uh, one of them, I, I was basically told, don't chase them. You know, they're not going to do anything. They're buying through this other group and uh, you're not going to be able to get it. And so I went out there met with them, understood the, the terms and conditions of what was happening and then came back and I was able to offer them a more competitive deal. And it made sense for my company. Um, I believe in a holy sales trinity. It's about the customer, the company, and you. 
Those three have to benefit on every deal. And if you can make sense out of it in a deal, make it work. And uh, so we had two really prominent wins in that, but we also had a good breadth of customers. We had more customers than anybody else. And so, and it was because we were engaging, because we had, uh, you know, we met people where they were. And frankly, we were trusted advisors. People call me up and if I wasn't the right guy, if it wasn't our solution, I, sometimes I would refer people to competitors because I had friends there, I knew them and I'm like, hey, I can't do this. We don't do this. Or I understand you're not looking exactly for my product or service. However, I got a buddy of mine who works over at XYZ. Let me introduce you to them. They'll take care of you. So people kept coming back because they knew that we were always going to steer them right. And that's what catapulted us in St. Louis to number one in the world, eight quarters in a row. Some great points there. Um, what was that? What was that triangle technique you said then? You said there was a three-way... Uh... Yeah, I call it the Holy Sales Trinity. That was it, so, the Holy Sales Trinity. Yeah, the customer, the company, and you. And all three have to benefit on every single deal. The customer, if you bend over backwards to please the customer, but you cut yourself too deep on margin, the company loses and you lose. You don't get paid. Um, and that's not going to be good for your business model. If you take too much care of the company, the customer suffers and you suffer, then who wins? You've got to make sure that all three benefit, sometimes equally, that they're not always going to benefit equally, but you have to make sure all three benefit equally on every deal or it's a bad deal. Yep. And I love that trusted advisor statement you just made there, Carson. The fact that if your solution is not a fit for someone, just say, look, I'm afraid we can't help on this instance, but I know this guy at this company or this girl at this company, they can help you out. And they're not going to forget that. So six months, a year down the line, they're going to come back. They're going to give you a call. Carson, thanks very much. You helped me out. I've got this project. I think it's a good fit for you guys. Let's, let's have a chat. So I had people yeah. so many times that said, I know you're more expensive, but I want to do business with you because you respond to me and because I can trust you. It's that simple. Got it. And one more golden nugget that you put back there. You said there was an account that you worked that no one had ever, or everyone was telling you against it. Everyone was turning you against it. So why, why did you do that? What was the thoughts behind that? Well, part of it's because I usually, I rarely listen to what I'm told. Um, Same. But, uh, <laughs> Same <laughs> but uh, you know, I believe in, have the conversation. Um, you know, Yep. The, the person had done business with our retail store before, right? They had bought some units and then they just never did again, right? Um, so why didn't they? What were they doing now? What's the current situation? And, and I always go in with the pretense of how can I help you? Look, I work for this organization. Um, you have a relationship with them or you don't have a relationship with them or whatever. Um, but I also, you know, as time goes by too, you're not just selling your organization. You're selling your own personal brand, Um and that's why I talk so much about, uh, you know, utilizing your own personal brand, because I knew that there would be value that I could bring to this organization one way or another. And if somebody will take a meeting with you, go out there, listen to them, figure out what they're doing. Um, they took a meeting with me and I went out there and I just talked to them and understood what their, um, their current arrangement was. And I just, I asked him if I'm able to do something better than that. Um, is that something that would be of interest? And, um, you know, I, of course you're always trying to pepper in additional, um, additional things that you can provide. Um, you know, there sure. were trainings and things like that that my team could do. Um, there were other little value adds. So you, you can kind of come in under the pretense of some of the free services or some of the immediate gives. Um, but ultimately, I just want to understand, you had bought at one point, what, what's your current deal? And if I could provide you something better than your current deal, would it be interesting? It was, and it worked out. And um, that was one of the largest deals that that division's ever done. Awesome. Okay, well, that's that's some really good good advice that not to ignore customers that have bought from you before and just ask the simple questions. And that's that's a really good lesson for anyone in business or sales or even marketing. Awesome, dude. And okay. I think the other piece that I would mention to that, Sam, is there were rules around uh, some of the ways that this group was buying because they were also reselling some of these devices. And okay. so I because there were rules in place and because this customer had a unique situation, I was able to go back to the people that set those rules and make a case that it was not, it, it didn't fit under those exact guidelines of what we couldn't do. Um, and I think there was a preconceived notion that, Hey, you're, you're just not going to be able to do this. So don't bother. Um, it was worth the legwork because we were able to put it together. It was good for the customer. It was good for the company. It was obviously good for me and for my team. So, um, I looked for a way to make that holy sales trinity at the heart of the deal that I was putting together. I was able to fit it in under the guidelines and make it make sense. 
and it worked out. So I think sometimes it's, it's all about too challenging. If you see a value in what you're doing, uh, don't be afraid to kind of challenge the, uh, the, the, the norm and the misconception. Uh, now, granted, if somebody had told me point blank, don't take that meeting, then I wouldn't have, but um, they, they were sure. like, don't bother chasing it. You know, it's just a, it's a lost cause. I don't believe in lost causes. I'm going to go after it. And I, and I did it and it worked. Got it. Awesome, dude. So you talked uh, a few minutes back about building up a network. So if everyone tuning in, what is the best way to build an effective network, Carson? I can tell you the way that works. Is there one me. best way? Yeah, I, I was going to say that could, that could look any number of ways, Sam. And uh, I'm going to tell you the way that worked for me. Um, and I, I think that it, it, it's all been a building work in progress. You know, when I started out, when I wrote my book, right, I was told uh, my publicist was like, hey, get a Twitter account, get all this. Stuff. I didn't know anything about Twitter. I didn't know much about LinkedIn, uh, but I started studying these things. And so when I was at the uh, business consultant firm right before Microsoft, um, I was uh, I was just cold calling. I was basically, I had no brand to sell. I mean, I worked for a small consultant firm. Um, I was basically just trying to get meetings with folks. And so it was basically going out on LinkedIn, trying to connect with people, trying to get a meeting. And I did. Um, and it was because of, I think a lot of people, business owners, sellers, we go after me. If we want to talk to somebody in an organization or if we want to talk to a person, we go after that person. We'll go after one, maybe five people. I'll go after a hundred. Um, I'll go after every single person in that organization that I think that it can, that can help me in some way, whether it's good intel, uh, whether it's to get me to introduce me to their boss, whatever it is. Um, so when I'm building a network, I'm thinking very holistically rather than uh, singularly. And so when I'm building that network, it's all about who are the people, number one, um, that I feel like they're, I could learn something from. And I feel like I can learn something from anyone. Um, as okay. I've gotten more seasoned and, and, and older in my life and career, I've become a lot more humble. Um, it, it's amazing too what being laid off a couple of times does and bouncing around to a few gigs after you get laid off. Um, it, it humbles you. And I needed that. Um, I needed to realize that I'm just a guy that uh, you know needs to find what unique value he can bring. And so mine was I need to create a network and relationships. And I, I won't profess to have said that I've done it perfectly, um, but I have utilized LinkedIn and other social tools to go out, uh, connect with people, and then realize one thing about that, that those tools can make the connection, but there's nothing that replaces this, the conversation or the face-to-face -face of the actual true, uh, really, you know, the, the relationship itself. So I've used those as a means to an end, a means to get uh, the face-to-face -face conversation and then create a community around what I'm doing. Completely agree. And that's exactly what I'd say about LinkedIn. It's, it's a great place to network, great place to consume content and put out decent content. And ultimately, if you're going to use it as a salesperson or a business owner, you want to start conversations. So you want to generate inbound leads or prospect out, be that messaging, DMs, be that voice messages, video, whatever, but start the conversation and bring it offline or bring it to a Zoom call like we're having right now. Now, you mentioned an interesting point just now, Carson, about not just connecting with the DMs, the decision makers, so the directors or the owners of business, but also everyone of, um, involved around them, so all the other employees. Now, is that only relevant for enterprise-level deals, or is it relevant for transactional as well? Love it. Great questions. Uh, sales is all about probability. Um, I had a, a deal about mm, four years ago, uh, where you know, I'd seen these reports and people that were just basically testing services and tiny little amounts of consumption, um, but they were obviously doing something. And so I went out and I just, I found a couple of these organizations that had some of the top, you know, amounts that were testing, but they weren't buying anything. Um, and I just used LinkedIn and I, uh, rather than going after one, two or five of the senior people at these organizations, I'd go after 30, I'd go after 50. And I'd send them all connection requests and just try to get after them. And, um, there was one that I sent 30 requests to. There were small organizations and 30 requests. And I got 11 that accepted my contact, you know, my contact request. And then I had one that replied to my follow-up. That's it, one. And uh, they said, yeah, you know, we're, you need to talk to this guy. Uh, we're, we're actually testing you against another competitor. And uh, just, you know, you need to talk to this guy because he's running that project. So I called him up. And ended up going out there. And I actually went out there under a preconceived notion. I didn't think it was going to be a, a very large deal. Um, but I went out there and, and again, created the face-to-face, -face, 
from the digital selling platform. And uh, long story short, within three months, we moved their entire platform into our cloud. It was the biggest deal done in our division that year. And um, that, I mean, that deal was still paying off because they're still a client. It was a new logo for us. Uh, they're still a client, great partnership, great relationship. Um, but when I talk about, you know, the, that type of uh, approach, that's worked for me in working with mom and pop shops, uh, you know, one, two sole proprietor shops, five, 10, 15 employees, all the way up to some of the massive deals that, uh, that my team and I have done over the last several years. Um, you know, I took the same approach. I got a new gig about six months ago and I took the same approach. I'm, I'm in an interesting spot today. I work in technology and healthcare. And, uh, okay. you know, I was able to connect with some of the senior leaders of some of these massive, um, you know, health organizations on LinkedIn. I sent them a note day one, day two in the role, and I was meeting some of these senior folks. Now, I didn't discriminate. I don't just want to meet with the senior folks. I've actually connected with over 150 people at some of the top organizations that I, that I service today. Um, and I, I, I haven't met them all in person, but I'm connected with them. And I think what's key to understand when you do this, Sam, is that you're, you're, you're building a community around what you do, but you're meeting them where they want to be met. Some of these people met with me right away, face to face, but um, a lot of them, they're part of my network. And now I'm inviting them to webinars that we do. I invite them to events. I send them a newsletter. Um, and a lot of times that's when they decide to engage. We've all seen marketing statistics. It takes five to 10 contacts for quality touches before somebody will engage. And people are doing more uh, investigation online now than ever before. So I think what we've got to understand as sellers is it's about quality touches. And a quality touch isn't always me calling them or emailing them saying, hey, I'm checking in or I'm following up. No, <laughs> it's, it's about, hey, I saw this article and it reminded me of the conversation that we had six months ago. I thought of you, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Or, hey, I saw your company was did some merger and acquisition activity. And I wanted to see if we could help in any way, shape or form. Leave it at that. And they may not respond. That doesn't mean they're ignoring you. I've had so many times where I've sent a newsletter to somebody and it reminded them that they owed me a reply from an email from a couple of weeks back. And then they sent me an email, completely separate thread. They heard of you. And that business consultant firm that I worked for years back, the best thing I learned there is always stay top of mind. And that can look yep. very different depending on where you are or what you're doing. Just stay top of mind. I communicate a lot. Yes, I know I post a lot on social media, um, but you, you think about me, right? I show up, you think about things. And as long as you're creating and, and putting out quality content, there is a value there. And I ha have been able to enter into so many conversations with people all over the world just because of thought leadership that I try to share. And I don't create all of that content. Yes, I write. Yes, I blog. Um, but it isn't always about about that. It's about putting things out there that are thought provoking where you can have a dialogue and have a conversation and have a meaningful relationship. And that's always what I've tried to do. So utilizing the digital selling platforms to create real relationships and then again, build a community around what you do and keep trying to find ways to engage people in that community and they will talk to you. Some of the best deals that I did, my, my last job that I, um, one uh, gold club in at Microsoft uh, were p customers that, that I rarely had spoken to over the three years that I'd done that job. Uh, but in the last year, the planets aligned because we had, we had kind of found some common ground. Um, you know, I kept engaging them and sending them things that were of, of value. Little did I know because they weren't replying, but eventually they did. And we were able to, uh, to move forward and make a deal happen that, that benefited everyone. So um, awesome, be persistent, be patient, be communicative, be consistent, be transparent. You'll win. And just before we move on, that's some really awesome advice. When you say you're sending prospects things of value, can you drill down into that into a little bit more just so we can understand what that means exactly in layman terms? Without a doubt. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's, there's no magic button for that. Like you're never going to 100% know what's going to be of value. Um, but you can certainly do, we're in a storytelling world, Sam. I mean, people want to hear stories. They want to hear, so okay, somebody in a similar situation to me did this and they benefited. Um, they want to know what's available. Uh, we're also in a world too where data uh, is what everybody's you know burning to get after. You know how can I how can I uh, monetize my data? How can I better use my data? How can I get more data? How can I connect my data? Um, and then how can I use that data to make better decisions and and glean insights? And that's the world we're in. Um, so I think. Anytime that you see something that is industry specific or um, that is specific to what that organization or that person is doing, um, 
all the way to uh, content that is in line with maybe conversations that you've had with them or with people in their organization. How powerful is it when you reach out to a C-level and you're able to say, hey, I talked to a lot of people in your organization. This is feedback that I'm getting. I saw this today and it reminded me of kind of what it sounds like your organization is trying to do. And this could be a C-level that's never spoken to you, uh, but to send them something like that and to say, hey, I'm coming from a position of strength because I've spent the time talking to people in your organization. I saw this. This is a story. This is real. This is what's happening. This is what people are doing in this situation. I'd love to get your thoughts. And I think one thing that we've got to understand too is it's not always all about asking them for something or trying to get a sale. It's really more about trying to get a meeting. Um, it's really about just trying to find a way to add value and always go, on, go in under the pretense of what they want to talk about. Um, and then what value you may be able to bring to them. That's not always going to be a sale right out of the gate. Um, you know, I work for a company right now that a lot of people do business with. Um, and so I think there was a conception that a lot of folks had that I was going to come in and try to sell them something, or I was just going to show up when we wanted their money. A lot of people expect that of sellers, right? So sure. I try to challenge that norm. And I always come into the pretense of, hey, you invest very substantially in our organization. I'd like to sit down and figure out how we can bring more value to what you're already buying. Uh, because there is, there's always more that you can do uh, together so true. and more value that you can add. And I think if you look for ways to add value for what they're doing today, if you challenge the norm and don't sound like everybody else, think about it. If you, don't, if you sound like everybody else, you're going to be treated like everybody else that reaches out, which means you're going to get the cold shoulder. Take the time to be different, be unique, differentiate yourself, come in from a situation where you want to add unique value, send them stories, send them things that you think will resonate. Um, you know, I even send surveys sometimes to customers and say, hey, Here's five, 10 really hot topics right now. Are there any that you'd like to talk about that you'd like me to bring in a specialist specifically for your industry to talk to you about uh, what we're doing, what they're doing, what people in this, in this organization or in this industry are doing? Um, try to find any way you can to offer and inform. Um, and I think those are the things that are going to make you stand out uh, because you want to earn a relationship. You don't want to get a sale. Sales is a byproduct. Uh, results are a byproduct of people and process and making people and process at the heart of everything that you're doing. And I think if the more you focus on that, the better you will be. Love that. Love that. And those are some really awesome tips for opening up conversations and like you say, real tangible ways to add value. Just before we move on, Carson, because I think you're going to have some nice advice on this. Is there, um, is there a good way to follow up? Now, this could be really useful for everyone tuning in rather than just the usual, just catching up to see how you're doing, just seeing if you're ready to sign. I'm just wondering if we can bring this deal over the line. Is there anything better than that? So maybe what you've said just now could come into play in terms of being able to share valuable content. Um, but is there any way you could differentiate yourself from just the usual follow-up email or follow-up call or just mundane things that people say when they're trying to get a deal over the line? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt, Sam. Um, I think there's a couple of things. Number one, you know, we talked earlier about bringing them on the journey with you. Um, which means building consensus, which means getting their buy-in, which means we've already agreed on timelines and uh, milestones that need to transpire to get from point A to where we want to go. And um, if you've isolated a need and there's an understanding that this needs to happen and you know that there's interest, then it's, it's very imperative that you lay out the milestones that need to transpire to get there right? Um, you know, do we need to do a certain type of engagement? Do we need to do a certain type of assessment? Do we need to produce some kind of statement of work? Um, you know, what is going to be entailed? What is the pre-sales process? What will the post-sales process look like? So the, it's, it's imperative that you lay that out. And I think that falls on you before any follow-up is even required. You want to establish those parameters because when you are following up, Rather than just saying, hey, checking in, seeing where this deal is, seeing where we are, what do you need, what questions do you have? Rather than doing all that, you want to come from a position of strength in everything you do. And so I find that it's more valuable to be able to go back and say, I want to make sure that we are being respectful of the timelines that you have already established or that we have collectively established to get where we need to go. And if they go dark, because let's face it, a lot of customers will go dark. They still, no matter what you do or what you say, they still won't respond. Then you yep. go back and you ask them, is this still a priority? 
And it's okay. Look, I, I've always been a firm believer that yes or no is better than maybe so. I don't need somebody so to true. string me along for six months on a deal. I don't need that. So if it's if this isn't a priority anymore, just tell me because I will move on. I'll take my resources elsewhere and I'll go after somebody who wants to spend time with me. Um, I think that's so critical for people to understand is that I'd rather have the no than a maybe. So if they ghost you a couple times, absolutely say, is this still a priority? You established two months ago, three months ago, that you wanted to move forward in this fashion. We agreed that these were the milestones we needed to hit. Is this still a priority? Bold it, underline it, whatever, and just get an answer. Um, because I think it's important that you understand that. And even put some skin in the game so that they sense that there is some, uh, some, some, some serious effort on your part. I tell them, like, hey, I have resources lined up to do what we agreed to do. I need to understand right now if I need to book them for this or if I need to let them go to their other projects. I get a response almost every time for that. Love that. But the other thing I would add, Sam, is if you effectively build a community around what you do and you've got a newsletter and you've got a different targeted outreach and you're sending stories and you're sending articles, they're going to reply to you. That's simple. I've had, and don't get me wrong. Sometimes it might take three, four, five newsletters, but I've had customers that have been dark on me for months that actually after a, a fifth newsletter from me, they reply and they say, Hey Carson, I know I owe you a reply on this. Let's talk. Um, you, you're never, you never fully will understand what's going on in your customer's world uh, because they're not going to tell you everything. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's important that you understand that the planets sometimes have to align People have bad days. People get pulled into fires. Um, priorities change. And you have to make sure that you understand that their world it does not revolve around you, number one. But number two, to meet them where they are, um, it, it can take a, a lot of different components. And so try to find different ways to stay top of mind without being aggressive, without being forceful, um, and really just being respectful. Hey, I, I just wanted to make sure that we were honoring the timelines that we already established. I've got the resources that are ready to be booked, but I need an answer today uh, if I'm booking them for you or if I can assign them to a different project. And uh, I think if you're respectful and you're tactful, people will uh, return that favor. No, that's it. I think you're right. If, if it gets to the stage of you're having to follow up um, consistently and for, for a long time, it usually not always means you've lost a deal. But like you say, staying front of mind throughout is such a good tip. And you've laid out some really nice digital channels that people can invest in. So whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's an email list, whether it's a blog, all these different ways that you can put out content to people that you want to engage with, start conversations. And if they do go quiet, then they're still going to be, be hearing from you anyway. So in six months time, when things clear up, they may well reach out to you. Awesome. Well, Carson, you've shared some absolute golden nuggets with us today. Really appreciate it. Everyone, you've been tuning in to Sam's Business Growth Show, where we sit down with business leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs from around the globe. We find out their story, how digital marketing has helped along the way, and their exclusive tips and insights to help you scar up your business. Carson, what I like to ask everyone before we finish is if you could thank just one person, either dead or alive, for having a positive influence on yourself, in your career, who would that be and why? Got to say my dad. Um, I have spent my entire life just wanting my dad and my mom, but mostly my dad, to be proud of me. Um, he was always the most respectful and caring and empathetic uh, guy. Now, he was, a, he was the disciplinarian when I was a kid. So uh, he was the one who, like, I didn't want to tick off dad. But when, um, when I moved away, uh, he, and, and especially when I became a dad myself, he was just my friend. And, um, you know, we, we communicate a lot. Um, actually, in light of what's going on in, in the world today, we communicate all the time. So we're emailing each other all day long because we're both homebound. Um, granted, I'm working and, and uh, you know, he's got stuff around the house, his, his honeydew list, if you will. Um, but <laughs> I, I always have sought uh, his approval. He's been the most consistent uh, presence in my life. I've had a lot of people come in and out of my life over the last 40 years. And uh, he has definitely been the, the, the one um, most consistent person that, uh, you know, that I've always wanted to have a relationship with. Uh, when I was younger, that looked different. Uh, and as, as I'm older, and now that I'm a dad, um, I look at that a little bit different, but uh, I've always wanted him to be proud of me. And I'd say that has made me work hard, uh, harder than anybody else that I was ever around, um, because I just wanted um, my parents' pride. And I have that, and it's the greatest blessing on earth. Um, and I think that makes me a better husband, a uh, better dad, a better employee, a better leader, 
better everything uh, because of that, uh, that I've always been searching for. Amazing, man. Excellent. So tell us a bit more about how people can connect with you and the best way people can get in touch with yourself. Yeah, Sam, I appreciate that. Uh, LinkedIn is a great way. Um, and I will reply. I, I love talking to people. Uh, LinkedIn, I'm definitely out there. Um, Twitter as well. Um, so either one of those would be great. Um, all of my books can be found on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble. And uh, I've also got a blog that's out um, on the web as well. So uh, any of those mechanisms, happy to connect, would love to as well. Um, I, I really look forward. The, the greatest benefit of writing the books that I've written, because um, like I said, I haven't sold enough to retire, uh, has been uh, connecting with people all over the world, um, people like yourself and uh, other sellers and leaders that are out there in the community. And just remind us of, the, of the, all the books' names, just for everyone to tuning in. Yep. So uh, Birth of a Salesman, uh, The Salesman Against the World, A Salesman Forever, and uh, coming later this year, Salesman on Fire. Awesome. I love that name, Salesman on Fire. Fantastic. So the show is sponsored by webchoiceuk.com, helping businesses skyrocket their leads, sales, and brand positioning by results-driven digital marketing, SEO, conversion-focused websites, and custom mobile apps. That's webchoiceuk.com. Carson, really appreciate your time, man. It's a pleasure. Sam, you do great work and uh, the pleasure is mine. Appreciate you. Subscribe today for more digital marketing, sales and business growth tips from the experts.